so good to be with you all. Welcome everybody joining us online as well. Like Matt said, you know, we, uh, I think it was in the first, just this last service at nine o'clock, back in the high school room, we had a bunch of people that are understanding better what it means to be baptized. Next Sunday, we're gonna have a baptism service. And really this is all about giving witness to the fact that God is in the business of changing lives. This is what he does day in and day out. And so baptism is an outward expression of an inward change. And you've heard me say a bunch of times before, if you haven't been baptized yet, guys, what this means is you have some unfinished business with God. So if you wanna know more about that, you can sign up in the lobby. Someone will reach out to you and you can participate with us uh, in that way next week. So for the last couple of weeks, we have been, uh, we've, we've entered some new space, um, new series titled Jesus in His Own Words. And the idea behind this is, it's pretty simple. Seems like there are a lot of people who speak on behalf of Jesus. And if we wanna know who the real Jesus is, then it's best to let him speak for himself. Think about your own life. You wouldn't want someone who doesn't really know you that well or doesn't, isn't familiar with your story to represent you. So let's just let Jesus speak for himself. And what's cool, what you have in your hands in your Bibles is a series of biographies, people that had a eyewitness, firsthand account. They lived and breathed with Jesus. They write about his life. And so we actually have the intentions, the thought, the mind, the heart of Jesus revealed in the Bible. And so what happens is as we let Jesus speak for himself, he says some super profound things. And in the best possible way, Jesus enters someone's life and turns it upside down. In John chapter 10, verse 10, he said, let me tell you in part why I'm here. I came to give you abundant life. You're like, abundant life? Aren't we all alive? Yeah, we're all alive, but it's like many people are simply existing. When he uses the word abundant, what he's talking about, he's talking about giving you the kind of life that you've always wanted. Purpose, order, meaning. How do you find hope in the midst of so many obstacles in life? I mean, life has a way of taking things away from you. Life can be very, very challenging. What do you do with all the wrongs that you've done? The guilt, the shame. Jesus comes on the scene and he says, if you listen to my voice, I will give you an abundant life. This is the life you've always wanted to lead. So in Matthew chapter five, Jesus lays down the greatest, it's the greatest sermon ever preached, known as the Sermon on the Mount. And essentially what he does is he compares two kingdoms and every single person on the planet falls into one of these two kingdoms. You either have the kingdom of God or you have the kingdom of man. One is earthly, one is heavenly, and they're vastly different. The kingdom of God is defined by purity as opposed to self-indulgence. The kingdom of God is defined by humility over earthly power. The kingdom of God represents God's will being done moment by moment. The kingdom of this earth represents a different power. You might say a dark power, and that power's will. Every single person is divided into one of these two kingdoms. And so when Jesus comes on the scene, he lays these principles out, and then he goes on, because he's a, just an absolute master at the metaphor, he lays down some metaphors that everybody can relate to, especially in his own time. And he talks about salt and light. And what he's gonna say is that salt and light, they're both agents that preserve 
they delay, and they also bring joy. So here's what he says in Matthew chapter five. He's gonna paint a picture of what it looks like to be different in a world that is full of the same. He says to his followers, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out or trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city that's set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but they put it on a stand. And in that way, it gives light to all in the house. And then Matthew 5, 16. This is one of the verses from which we get the name of our church, Illuminate. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. When God's people practice kingdom of earth principles, it gets very confusing. Let me say that again. When God's people begin to practice kingdom of earth principles, it's very confusing. And so that's why Jesus drops all these truths and he said, I just wanna clear things up. When my people practice kingdom of heaven principles, you have real influence. You bring about real change. In fact, here's what happens. You actually bring a taste of heaven to this earth. And this earth, as he's about to say, desperately needs it. Salt and light. These are two things that would be in every home. The people would be very familiar with these things, but in a different way than you and I are. We see salt as something that adds flavor to our food, but back in the day, that's not the primary use of it. Back in the day, it was used to preserve. They didn't have refrigeration, obviously, in the way that we do today. So they would take salt and rub it into meat, and literally what would happen is the salt would delay the decay. And Jesus says, that's, that's you, Christian. You're like salt in that you have this ability to delay the decay that the world is in. There's a famous Christmas carol, O Holy Night. There was a line in that song that I never really fully understood, so I had to look up the meaning of the word. Long lay the world in sin and error, what? Pining, do you guys know what pining means? You, you probably do, you're smart. I didn't know what it meant, I had to look it up. Pining literally means to waste away. That's a super profound line, right? In other words, what he's saying is, the world was just wasting away in sin and error until, the next line, he, Jesus, appeared. And then what happened to change things? The soul, the human soul actually felt its weight. It felt its worth. How so? Because that baby would grow to be a man, and that man would die on the cross, and that man would absorb all of your junk, all of your wrongs, all of your messiness upon himself. He would die for your sins. Man, there's great worth to your soul. And that was proven with the birth of Jesus. Uh, he says that we're light, which implies that the world is a dark place. Um, now, 
I'm fully aware that this is the kind of language that causes many people to reject Christianity. A person might say, you know, you Christians are so pessimistic. I mean, your view of the world, it's just dark and gloomy. And you, why are you like that? Why are you always talking about things like that? Um, it just brings everybody down. Well, the reality of human existence is, is simply this. Evil is real and darkness does exist. And if you ignore that, then you're actually part of the problem. Because to ignore evil is to let it thrive and flourish. More to the point, in some way, we all contribute to the darkness of this world through our own selfish actions. And we just don't like to admit that. Um, Christian apologist was speaking at the University of Pennsylvania, and he was presenting an argument as to why people should believe in objective morality, specifically the morality that we find in the Bible. And so after his talk, there was an open mic, a student approached and, and said, uh, what are you so afraid of? <laughs> what, are you, what are you scared of? You know, kind of like, what's your problem? Why are you so afraid of subjective morality? In other words, he's, he's saying, shouldn't we all be able to decide what's right and wrong? Can't humanity decide for itself what's good and what's evil? Seems like we could figure this one out. What are you so afraid of? We certainly don't need some book to tell us between what's right and what's wrong. And the apologist replied with a simple question. He said, let me ask you, do you lock your doors at night? And the student laughed and said, well, yeah, I do. And the point was taken. It turns out that evil is real and that it's very hard for us collectively as a society, certainly when you look at humanity across the world, for us to get on the same page in terms of what's right and what's wrong. I mentioned it uh, last, or a couple weeks ago. In the next two months, it's estimated that 250,000 people will have died, Ukrainians and Russians, in the war. You know, this is 2023. That's one year, 250,000 people. In the 20th century, there has been more bloodshed than the previous 19th centuries combined. Oh, and by the way, Putin thinks he's doing the world a favor. He thinks it's the moral thing to claim land that once belonged to Russia. Zelensky thinks he's doing the moral thing to defend his homeland. Hitler thought he was doing the world a favor in exterminating Jews. For him, it was the moral thing to do. Two world wars. Some think we're on the brink of a third. In the last 150 years, maybe amongst two or three dictators, that amounts to literally millions of deaths. It seems that man is not very good at solving man's problems. And yet, we still want to be the master of our own domain. 
but it's not quite working out. We've fooled ourselves into thinking we can solve our problems apart from God. So how did we get here? You ever ask that question, like, how did we get here? Well, let me give you a, a, just a brief philosophical trajectory. When Rome fell, it gave birth to what's known as the Dark Ages. It was the collapse of intellect and cultural advancement. And that lasted until about the 14th or 15th century where a renaissance period happened, where the age of enlightenment took hold. And so you had philosophers, one in particular, Rene Descartes, French philosopher. He famously said, cogito ergo sum. I think, and that's how I know I exist. I think, therefore I am. And all of a sudden, man's mind was elevated to the center of reality. We are rational beings. This is the thing that separates us from the animal world. And so if we only apply our ability to think and reason, we can free ourselves from all that encumbers us. And the world can become a better place. Fast forward a few hundred years, now the groundwork is laid for someone like Darwin who comes on the scene and with man's ability to reason and think, we no longer need a creator God because we have the processes of evolution. Interestingly, Descartes was a Christian, having no idea where the trajectory of this philosophy would go. And so at the time of Darwinian evolution, there were Christians who were scratching their head thinking, how did we get here? Well, what I'm explaining is the groundwork was already laid. Fast forward a few decades later, and, and here we are today. And I believe that we have lived in the midst of, in my opinion, the second largest epistemological shift, perhaps in the history of the world. Because no longer do we appeal to reason, but now it's about feeling. I feel, therefore I am. So this represents an interesting age. You have a young girl who's five foot six, she weighs 75 pounds, she looks in the mirror and she, she says, I feel fat. So she goes to her therapist and the therapist tells her what? You are what you feel. Are we helping people? You have young people in various countries, European countries, who say, I feel that life is no longer worth living. And you have the government stepping in and saying, we can help you with those feelings. We can help you end your life because you are what you feel. So we scratch our heads and we think, how did we get here? Well, the way that we got here was through subjective reasoning, moral reasoning. And Jesus says, I came to give you abundant life. And abundant life is not going to be found in the mind of man. You're going to have to transcend human mind 
and put it in the mind of what is supernatural. No, there is a God who is the author, creator, and sustainer of all life. Therefore, he knows how life is to be lived best. And so, all of these, these things come to bear in 2023, and here we are. And Jesus' message turns out to be more profound than we know. All of this, again, in my opinion, has led to the age of skepticism, and skepticism pr promotes a very deep sense of hopelessness. Salt and light, Christian. The world is dark, it needs your light. The world is decaying, and it needs your saltiness. And in the end, when you do these things, ultimately, there is something supernatural that people are pointed to. They glorify God in heaven. But there's a challenge here, right? You all experience this, I feel it myself. Verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. Here's the problem, the salt that loses its taste how can it be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. So it's not that easy. I learned something about salt. In and of itself, it's a very, very stable compound. The thing that causes salt to lose its taste is when it's exposed to different compounds. So if you leave salt out in the rain, it loses its saltiness. Salt on top of soil loses its saltiness. When salt is exposed to different compounds, it loses its saltiness. And so what the Romans would do, just as Jesus said, they gathered up and they use it to pave their roads, and people walk on it. How do you maintain your saltiness? Paul says this in Ephesians 5, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. So here's what he's saying. He's saying, Christian, if you participate in what is dark, your light becomes dim. If you participate in the decay that this world is wrapped up in, then you lose your saltiness. So don't participate. Now, at the same time, there are some Christians that absolutely remove themselves from the world and the culture, and that's not us. If you read one of our core values, it's right over there, engaged in culture. We've got it written on the wall, in the world and not of it. What does that mean? Uh, to be a monk is a bad idea. To go away and remove yourself, to go up on some high mountain and contemplate things and have no real influence in the world, that's a bad idea. The Bible doesn't, doesn't that, that's not what it's about, right? That certainly wasn't the life of Jesus. Jesus engaged with the culture and with people. Um, there are some people that are so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. So in John chapter 17, Jesus is about to go to the cross and he prays for future believers, and this is what he says, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Then he says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. So there is a very real power that is unseen, a force that is at work that opposes the kingdom of God. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them, set them apart in the truth. Your word is truth, just in case you don't know. As you sent me into the world, look at this, so I have sent them into the world, and for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in the truth, in the world and not of the world. Jesus didn't conform to the culture's mold, and neither should his followers. So salt makes things palatable. It, makes, it, it gives flavor to things, and that's the life of a Christian in the world. We bring light 
we bring this change effect and the world is a different place. The kingdom of heaven is brought to earth. When Jesus says you're the light of the world, the people that were listening, it would have been something that would have really struck a chord with them because it's like these are super common people. And what they have standing in front of them is this man saying, your life counts. You don't realize the kind of influence you can have on other people. And this would have been, this would have been very, very encouraging. And then he goes on to say, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Have you ever seen those, um, those satellite maps of the earth at night? And you can see different cities that are lit up, right? You can see like big cities like LA and New York. Essentially, that's what he's describing. It's like where all of these people live, it's like these, they're lights. They come together and they make this one big bright light. Well, that's how it is for the Christian community. So over the last few years, it's, it's um, become more and more popular. In fact, I read a statistic that said, I think it was 67% of Christians think that um, church attendance is not essential to their Christian life. That's two-thirds. So now, right, what I'm about to say, all of you right now, you're like, thank God I'm in church today. See, we have some verses that actually tell us it's really important for us to come together. It's like all these little individual lights, they gather, they come together, and we energize each other. We get recharged. It's this really bright light that shines, and then we go out and into the world. And so I don't have any verses that support the idea that coming together with other believers in close proximity isn't necessary. It is necessary. So what does it look like? All right, well, here's how it works. A Christian shows up in the workplace, and that Christian refuses to participate in the company gossip. Seems that there's always one or two people that are always being talked about. A lot of times it's the boss. But the Christian refuses to step into that space. And what ends up happening is, is the culture changes and the person being gossiped about actually finds a friend. Mom is taking kids to school. And before long, mom realizes, wow, there's, there's a lot of ladies that kind of form a little school clique. Yeah. But that Christian mom refuses to participate in what tears people down and actually promotes unity amongst the group and things become healthy. A Christian steps into the political arena. It is possible. And as Jesus says, exposes the deeds of darkness and brings stability and brings what is good for the people. A Christian student walks onto a secular university campus. And you have to be careful here now. Coming from someone who's had a little bit of education, what I've seen happen is, oftentimes a student will confuse a teacher who has a PhD with G-O-D. Follow what I'm saying? You have to be careful now. And you're taught that this is a hotbed of higher education and free thinking. And then you quickly realize that there are certain forms of thought that aren't tolerated. And a Christian student steps into that space graciously and politely 
and shares a different narrative about how things are. And people are challenged. Worldviews are exposed for what they really are. And then that student becomes an inspiration to others. Above all, a Christian steps into any sphere of influence that he or she has and brings the message of Jesus Christ. Your effectiveness is determined by your saltiness and the brightness of your light. Salt and light delay decay, expose darkness, but they also bring joy. How do we give it off? Well, verse 16 is the key. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your, notice what it says, good works, and give glory, not to you, but to your Father who is in heaven. Salt and light are manifested through the good works that God's people do. So let me, let me just ask you this question. Are you the light of the world? How salty are you? In order to be the light of the world, pardon the expression, but first, you have to get lit. <laughs> you knew that was coming. In order to be the light of the world, first, you have to get lit. Not in the intoxicated sense, but in the spiritual sense. In the spiritual sense. What am I talking about? It's actually quite easy to understand, and intuitively, you know it to be true. Jesus came into the world as a sacrifice, and the world needs it. Because the world is jacked up. Every single person is born into a dysfunctional relationship with the God who created them, every single person. It's a big problem because God is holy and God is just, and you want him that way. You don't want to serve some capricious God. Like the gods of the Greeks, they're kind of funny. Like they would intervene in the affairs of man and you know, use men as their sport and very selfish. God of the Bible is very different. The God of the Bible is a giver. He gives his son. Why his son? Because sacrifice communicates love. Right? You're in a relationship with someone. The greater the sacrifice, the greater the love. And so when God is like, how can I prove to humanity that I am for them? Well, what's he going to do? He's going to say, let me just give you what is of greatest value to me. How about my son? I've shared this with you guys before. I, I care about you. I love you. But I wouldn't give the life of any of my kids for any of you. Sorry. I don't care about you that much. But here's the profound thing about God. He actually does. He does care about you that much. And so no one can look at God and say, well, you just need to do more. You just need to do more. You, if you could, it would just prove it if you could just do more. The challenge is with the human heart, and that is it's not very open and receptive. And so the first step is just saying, hey, I recognize that I am, I'm actually part of, of, of the problem, but I celebrate the fact that God enters into my own messiness and pulls me out of it because he cares about me. And he actually offers me a, a better way. When Jesus came, he said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Everybody's, you know, we're all, hey, show me the way. Hey, what is truth? We, what does it mean to have life? Jesus came, isn't that interesting? Same questions people are asking today. Jesus just nails it 2,000 years ago. So 
Here's how I wanna end our time together. I'm pretty sure the spirit of God is tugging at you in some way. I would encourage you not to be resistant. I can tell you that this week he's been tugging at my life a lot. You know, it's like every week I get up here and I say, I've been wrestling with this, okay? This is what God is doing in my life. Now it's your turn. So I'm gonna ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. Here's what I want you to think about. Salt and light. There are so many encouraging things to be said about this church. I think we do it really, really well. I think we live up to our name. And I think God is pleased with that. And yet, there are those moments when darkness might creep in, when the salt loses its effectiveness. And we just wanna expose those things to the truth of God's word and understand what the spirit of God is saying to each one of us. Because, you know, when you live for Christ, you're living for something that's much bigger than yourself. And, that, and that's absolutely it. That's where you find life. See our good works and not give glory to us, but that we would simply be a reflection of the light of Christ in our lives. But for some, it simply might begin with, I need to make the decision to receive that light. And if that's where you're at, you can do that through prayer. Prayer is simply talking with God. You simply say, God, I, I recognize the fact that everything that's spoken in the Bible is true. It's true about me. Born into a dysfunctional relationship with you, but you sent Jesus to make that right. That's the first step. If that's the desire of your heart this morning, we wanna talk to you about that. I'm gonna pray, and then we're gonna have some people down in front I told you guys a few weeks ago that one of the things we need to do more of as a church family is pray for one another. And so that's what we wanna do for you again this morning. We're gonna have some leaders right down in front. And we just wanna pray for you. There isn't a person in the room that doesn't need prayer. I had some people praying over me this morning. We all need it. You may have some burden. You may have something on your heart that God is nudging you toward and you just wanna need another brother or sister to come alongside you, encourage you in that. If you've made that decision for Jesus, I would encourage you to come forward during this time as well. Just let the people know we're down in front and they would love to help you understand more of what that means. So I'm gonna pray and then we're gonna sing one last song together. And I would just invite any to come forward and receive that. Father, even now, we ask that you would continue to do your work in our lives because at the end of the day, glorifying you, God, is what it's about. It's where we find the greatest blessings in life. Everything we do, everything we say, we want it to be under your hand of blessing, all for your glory. Thank you for the good words of Jesus that give us life. We pray it in his name. That is the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, and God's people said, amen.